You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, I've got Anthony or Tony DeStefano on the line and on the Zoom call. He's got a new book out, The Deadly Don. It's a story about Vito Genovese, who was one of the more interesting mafia bosses that came out of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. He was a long-serving boss. You can see the cover of the book. Welcome, Tony. I'm really glad to have you on again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's kind of go back and remind people of some of your other books. You're a pretty prolific author, Tony. Uh, Gotti's Boys, talking about all the guys that John Gotti surrounded himself with. As, as it said, he did not do everything he did alone. Nobody does anything that they do alone. He surrounded himself with a whole rogues gallery of contract killers, fixers, enforcers, and to build, you know, his little crime empire, which really didn't last too long. You've got the big heist, a take on the Lufthansa Airlines heist, 1978, Gangland, New York, the places and faces of mob history, mob killer, the bloody rampage of Charlie Charles Cornelia, mafia hitman, mafia madness and murder. You've got King of the Godfathers, the story of Joseph Big Joy Massino. I think you have another one too. Uh, is it Vinnie Gorgeous? Vinnie Gorgeous. Ugly story of a New York mobster. And I think, I don't know if you mentioned the, the Frank Costello book, Top Hoodlum. So that's another one. I did not. I did not. All right. So have we covered them all? Man, I tell you what, you <laughs> you are the epitome of the mob historian. Well, it's been a lot. A lot of work, <laughs> let me tell you. But some of it has been quite fun. Let's talk about Vito Genovese. One of the things I think is most interesting is his place in those mob meetings, you know, started off. With back in Sicily, he I believe he attended a meeting with Lucky Luciano and then the meeting in Cuba. And he was just a central figure in that international narcotics trafficking that the mob did over the 30s, 40s and 50s. Well, the Vito, he was, of course, was in the United States after he emigrated here in uh, the early 20th century. He went back to Italy in the 1930s with a murder indictment breathing down his neck in Brooklyn. He returned to Italy and lived there, and he got tight with Mussolini's government, Mussolini's son-in-law, and as they say, Mussolini himself. And he was obviously, apparently doing meetings over there with people involved in the narcotics trade. The meetings he went to, from what we've been able to learn, I don't think he was involved in that 1950s meeting in Palermo, where a lot of the American gangsters and some of the local Sicilian mafiosi met to solidify procedure in the heroin trade. But he was involved, this was Vito Genovese, in a meeting in 1947, 46, early 47, 1947 in Havana, Cuba, where Lucky Luciano came back to the Western Hemisphere after being exiled to Italy or deported where everybody had a big meeting. There's a big meeting with Frank Costello, Vito Genovese, the Chicago crew, I believe Anastasia was involved, a whole slew of people. And they kicked around narcotics as well. And that was a meeting where Luciano supposedly demurred and didn't want to get involved, but everybody else was trying to figure out what to do about it. Some for it, some against it. Ultimately, Genovese was involved 
in a very big narcotics case here in 1958 in New York, which ultimately got him sent to prison. So he was involved in at least one major meeting and obviously was doing other stuff here in New York with some other meetings as well that went on. That's in a nutshell was his involvement. He was involved. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it seemed like he was involved with the uh, Appalachian meeting. Actually, he had Albert Anastasia had been killed, and when he kind of liked the, if I remember right, he was one of the people that really wanted that meeting to happen. He's trying to assert himself as as more powerful as he moves on up. That's true. I mean, the Appalachian meeting in uh, 1957 took place some weeks after Albert Anastasia was assassinated in the barber's chair in New York. Vito at that point, was trying to position himself as the preeminent New York City gangster and push for the meeting. In fact, there was a little mini-meeting before that, some weeks before that, out in New Jersey, and a group of people got together to sort of have a pre-summit summit, in a way. There was some pushback from the Chicago mob. They didn't want to go to a place like Appalachia, upstate New York, Appalachian is a town, actually. And they said, look, we own Chicago. We know the police. Why do you want to go to a place like Appalachian where you don't know anybody? You're not sure of the police. It's a small town, no resources. Why go? Vito nonetheless pushed, and he had some support from some of the New York-based mobsters. And uh, that's where the meeting was held. And of course, as you know, and probably many of your listeners and viewers know, that turned out to be a disaster. When the state police sort of stumbled upon it, and the gangsters were pictured trying to flee the meeting, some running through the woods, others trying to run the roadblocks of the police. So it was kind of a disaster for the mob because they got so much attention. They got so many problems. Some of them got indicted, although Vito didn't. Ultimately, those cases were thrown out, but it caused a lot of trouble. And I think a lot of resentment towards Vito Genovese for pushing for that meeting in Appalachian. Yeah, really, you know, I, actually, it, it affected us here in Kansas City. Our new boss, who was really under the radar at that time, was on his way there with an old boss from the 20s and 30s, a guy named Tano Lacoco, and a new boss, Nick Zavella, was a young guy, and, and he had really just taken over, but he was way under the radar, which he always liked to stay, and they got caught up in, on a, in a railroad station on their way north to this meeting. So with that, let everybody in Kansas City know his importance on a national level. So that's the deal. If they'd like to keep their names down low, the good ones like Chicago and Kansas City and the better ones in New York, they like to keep that low profile and let so law enforcement won't focus on them so much. <laughs> that <ahead>. didn't happen. <laughs> no, <laughs> not out of that meeting, especially. That was huge headlines, huge. And then they had a grand jury afterwards that put all everybody's names even more in the headlines. So curious about something. Lucky Luciano told a story in his book, was it The Last Testament of Lucky Luciano? about his confrontation with Vito Genovese at that Cuba meeting. Supposedly, the way I read it was that Genovese went to him and said, you know, I've got information that the Cuban government's being pressured by the U.S. government because they know you're here and they want you to go back to Italy because Luciano was trying to move closer to the United States. And Luciano thought that Genovese had been the one who told the government about him being in Cuba and beat him up. What do you think about that story? Those same passages in Luciano's last testament, he said that Genovese told him just before the summit in Havana that, look, why don't you step down? I'll take over. 
would be better for everybody. And Luciano, of course, said was not going to have anything of it. And he read Genovese the Riot Act, and it was clear that he did not like Genovese, thought him a scheming kind of guy. Ultimately, Luciano also relates a story, I don't know if you remember this, in the book, in which he said he and Genovese got into a, basically a fist fight in Luciano's hotel room in Havana. And the image of these two middle-aged gangsters sort of <laughs> rolling around and having a, a, a fight, in one sense, comical. In another sense, I'm not sure I, I necessarily believe it, because a lot of, some of that stuff we just can't verify. Yeah. Luciano related certain injuries that Genovese sustained in that fight. They didn't square up what we later know about Genovese's medical records, which I was able to read from his prison days. So did it happen? I don't know, but it would have been a a hell of a fight, I'm sure. Uh, Genovese got the worst of it, according to Luciano, of course. Yeah. Right? Of course, you know, the guy writing the book's going to be the winner. <laughs> That's for of sure. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I, with you, Tony, like, I just can't imagine these two little old middle-aged men rolling around, scrapping on the floor, and one really beats the other one up. And Unless one of them has a couple of guys hold the other one while he works him over, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> which would be more likely the fact if it really happened like Luciano alleges that it happened. So Genovese makes a move on Frank Costello, which I think is interesting and one of the more interesting stories out of those, that 1950s New York mobster milieu, shall we say. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, after Luciano was deported to Italy in about 1946, the control of the Jenner was, became, was Luciano's crime family. By default and by arrangement, really went to Costello. He was the more preeminent guy of the clique. He had the political connections. He had the savvy. He had legitimate businesses and was a more favored caretaker for Luciano when Luciano was deported. Genovese resented that. And always wanted to be the more powerful because he sensed that after he went through his own legal troubles, that he didn't really get his share of the, the legal business and really resented that. So ultimately, in 1957, again, that was another watershed year, Genovese teamed with Vinny the Chin and they ambushed Costello as he went into his apartment building on Central Park West one evening. And Costello was shot. He was winged in the head and, of course, survived. But he got the message and he decided he was going to retire and turn over a central control of the family to Genovese, which is where it remained, at least for a little while. The suspect, Vinny the Chin, went on the land for a couple of weeks, but ultimately he was caught and brought to trial and acquitted. Basically, after Costello said, you know, I don't know who shot me. <laughs> And one of those classic mob stories where Costello turned around when he heard the words, this is for you, Frank. The gun went off and there was one wound to the head. And although he wasn't killed, Costello got the message and figured, why don't I just retire and grow orchids out in Long Island? <laughs> really, you know, the compare or contrast those two mob bosses is like the yin and the yang, if you will, of mob bosses, the way they conducted business. Costello was known as the great negotiator and just made that up. But, you know, the prime minister, he, he formed relationships to make money all over the, really all over the United States, even here in Kansas City and down in Louisiana to make money off of gambling on a national, nationwide basis. While Genovese was this feared narcotics dealer, his main claim to fame was he was so violent and murderous that 
people scared him. Whereas Costello, you can make a deal and make some money with Costello. Those two guys were just uh, polar opposite ends of the mob spectrum, wouldn't you say? It's, I mean, Genovese, uh, in his younger days, particularly, you know, was accused of carrying out homicides. Later, in, you know, the 30s, 40s, other people were doing his bidding. And he got the reputation for being a rough character. He wasn't physically rough with people as he matured. But, you know, he had people to do his bidding, particularly for that click from the West Side with Tony Bender and Strollo, Anthony Strollo and some others. Genovese did have legitimate businesses. So in that sense, he was similar to Costello, but they were very successful businesses. And he really didn't have his finger into some of the major quasi-legitimate rackets like the slot machines and gambling operations, which Costello had a significant piece of. Costello, of course, had the political connections that Genovese didn't have. And that was an important power base back in the 30s and 40s in New York and into the 50s, too. Genovese didn't have that. So he had to rely more on a muscle and hardcore illegal activity than, say, Costello later in life. Interesting. I guess the last case, the, the narcotics case that put him in jail and they ended up, which is kind of an unintended consequences, ended up with Joe Valachi becoming famous as the first real well-known mob informant that outlined it for the public and the government as well, but mainly for the public because the, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was really watching these guys and documenting the mafia. The FBI wasn't back then, but the FBN or Federal Bureau of Narcotics was. So what was that narcotics case that Genovese fell on? Well, the narcotics case was, you're right, the, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics had it in for somebody like Genovese, and they had him on their radar. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of activity on the federal side, tracing narcotics from a variety of sources, mainly Europe, but some from, you know, from Asia. Genovese, the evidence showed at his tr subsequent trial that he really wasn't involved in the heavy, the dealing, the transactions, the smuggling. This was stuff that was coming out of places like Cuba and Puerto Rico, because Cuba at that point was still while the narcotics were being trafficked, was still somewhat open because the Castro hadn't taken power yet and was considered a source point. Later, of course, they had to switch their operations to Puerto Rico because Cuba became a lost venue after Castro took power and the revolution was underway and really wasn't much they could, they could do. So the smuggling crews, Genovese's comrades, as it were, Use Puerto Rico. And there was a lot of trafficking that was going on, a lot of shipments. Places like Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Miami were involved in the trans-shipping operations. And ultimately, what happened was that the feds, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, turned an informant, this guy, uh, Cantaloupes. And he was a Puerto Rican immigrant who came to the United States, lived in Chicago for a short while, and then um, came to New York, where he sort of knocked around doing this and that got involved in drug dealing, and ultimately in heroin. And he was the one who, after he got in trouble, of course, flipped and was able to give the Federal Bureau of Narcotics the, I think, slender evidence that Genovese was ultimately indicted on. It was a very strange transaction. The only substantial evidence they had was a Federal Bureau of Narcotics agent sitting in a German restaurant in New York City, and supposedly with an earshot, as Genovese was introduced to Cantaloupes, 
and saying, oh, he's all right, meaning kind of a ratification or a, giving him a stamp of approval for being a good guy for the dope ring. And that was enough when they put the case together to ensnare Genovese into the heroin operation. It was a fairly big case. Uh, they had a lot of people indicted off of it, the spinoff investigations. Carmine Galante and Indimo Papadio was a big garment district guy. John Ormento, another big New York gangster. And Vinny the Chin was also ensnared in the case. And they indicted everybody in 58. It wasn't long after, in fact, Genovese refused to testify to Congress that he got indicted. And he went to trial. And despite his protestations of innocence, he got convicted and got his long prison sentence, which was basically the death knell for him because he died in prison. That, in a nutshell, is what happened. Genovese would go to his death protesting his innocence, saying he was framed. And, um, of course, his appeals went to naught. That's what happened to him. He had a very short career as boss on the street because, don't forget, you know, 57, he really takes over the family. Then in 58, he gets charged. He really gets pulled into prison shortly after that. So he was like John Gotti in some sense. He uh, didn't have much time on the street as the unfettered boss. Interesting. First comment I have, or maybe just a little couple more details, is that move from Cuba to Puerto Rico. Didn't really realize that before. I think that's that's not real well known that they moved out. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, there was a lot of smuggling going on via Cuba for the heroin early in this uh, conspiracy. You know, of course, they had to search for an alternate market, transshipping point, when the Castro started making trouble because it became unstable in Cuba. Yeah, and they had to switch, and they switched to islands just off Cuba, uh, Puerto Rico, and as well as Puerto Rico, the mainland itself. And that's what happened. And the interesting thing in Genovese's case, Buttress's argument, so to speak, that he was framed, was that there was a federal agent who showed up at his house one day in New Jersey and said uh, he wanted to speak to him. Of course, Genovese was very cautious and suspicious about why this guy's showing up. And the guy told him, well, you're being framed. You know, they're trying to make a case against you for publicity purposes and gave him some information, which they had to take to federal court. Because this guy was a federal agent and making these allegations. And there was a full-blown inquiry about it. This guy, Begendorf was his name, federal agent. They did an investigation. And it's not clear who was telling the truth on this. Begendorf did go to Genovese's house, but he denied subsequently saying some of the things that Genovese said he said. And then, uh, so that didn't go anywhere, although it stoked Genovese's suspicion that he was being set up. Later, after Genovese got convicted, Cantaloupe's tried to recant his testimony. It's in the book. It's all described in the book in detail. And it turns out one of the other drug defendants set this up and, I guess, coerced Cantaloupe's to give a half-hearted recantation of his testimony and then later had the recantation. <laughs> it all sort of collapsed. And of course, Genovese's appeals went no place at that yeah. point. And he spent his remaining days in prison where he died. Wow. So I guess one last thing here. I have a couple of questions or a question at least about your research process on these Bob guys. This Velacci thing. Now, he was in Atlanta with Joe Velacci, who now Velacci was a soldier in the Genovese family or in that family. And Velacci thought that he was being set up to be murdered for some reason. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, Valachi was in Atlanta with Genovese. Uh, they apparently shared a cell for a while. Valachi had his own drug issues, drug cases that got him sent to prison. And he sensed, Valachi did, that he was being set up to be killed in prison by one of the, I think it was Joseph D. Palermo, who was another drug defendant of Genovese. And it was a case of mistaken identity. Mm-hmm. Valachi killed a guy in the prison yard, turned out to be the wrong guy. He wasn't connected to any plot to murder him. Of course, that got Valachi in more trouble. <laughs> and the only way out for him, you know, you do a homicide in prison, you're going to, whatever your earlier troubles were, this is really a trouble. He decided to turn into the big cooperating witness against the mafia, in particular Genovese, because Genovese was his boss in the Genovese crime family. So it was then that Valachi saw the light and decided to become what was, for the time, the major government witness against the mafia. And you know that the hearings that spawned in the Congress, testimony, and it was quite a show. And he ensnared Genovese and other allegations, but didn't mean anything because Genovese was already in jail. Yeah. Genovese denied, basically, and said that Valachi's making up stories. History will be the judge of that. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. Genovese, he was involved in several watershed moments in, in mob history. And so it's. He, he, yeah, he was. And he was. Uh, these moments, uh, really, the direction for these events was all sort of negative for him. <laughs> the Appalachian meeting turned out to be a mob disaster and really caused a lot of resentment for him. And his profile, his high profile, as a result of being a preeminent New York mobster, put him on the radar of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And that put him into trouble. And ultimately, that was the straw that broke his back, and he got sent to prison. After what was a short run as boss, he really was star-crossed, as it were, as a boss. But look at it this way. The Genovese crime family today is still named after Vito Genovese, and that's his legacy. Yeah. No matter what happened to him, no matter how stillborn his career was as the top boss, this crime family is still known as the Genovese crime family. You know, it's nobody else. It's not Luciano. <laughs> I noticed that. I've always often wondered about that names of crime families and how that sticks. You know, the Gambino family and Gotti desperately wanted to be the Gotti family. I think I don't think that really stuck in the popular consciousness. And it, and I guess actually the press is the one who decides what the name of a family is over the long haul. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, Messino also wanted to change the name of the Bonanno crime family to the Messino crime family, and that didn't go over well. Not that didn't happen. And Gotti, of course, you know, you're probably right. He probably did want it to be known as the Gotti family. But these modern-day guys, apart from Genovese, Bonanno, and Lucchese, right? The old-timers. Yeah. Those are the names that have stuck. And it's interesting to see how that legacy continues today. i tell you what, if I was a mob boss today, I would not want it to be the Jenkins crime family. First of all, it doesn't have a real ring to it, but I, like, I don't want the heat, man. That, that's that's, what, what, that's what would happen. These guys know today, you know, you're out front. You name a crime family after yourself or you're the known big boss on the street. You're going to draw the heat of law enforcement and you're going to draw so much attention going to be so many attempts to ensnare you in uh, RICO cases, racketeering cases, that it's not worth it. Everybody today who's out working out on the street as a street boss is trying to keep low level and doing it with various degrees of success. 
But uh, you don't want that attention today. You don't need to have all the attention and all the resources of law enforcement coming down on your head, which is what will happen. You know, I worked organized crime in Kansas City for 14 years, 13, 14 years. And even the children of the Savella family who were just small time guys, they never really became anything. It really tried to become anything in the mob, but they had their own little drug things going on. I mean, you can't believe the resources that came down on them just because of their last name. Thanks, Grandpa, or thanks, Great Uncle, for that last name, because they didn't get away with anything. It, it gave, you know, pretty decent sentences to them, too. You know, that's what happens. Get the attention. Cases get made against you. You don't need this. And there's so many informants out there, so many people waiting to yeah. be a cooperating witness. There was a joke. Somebody said that the best career path in Howard Beach, an area where Gotti worked out of Queens, is to be a cooperating witness. The mob doesn't have 401ks, longevity <laughs> programs, <laughs> retirement programs. So the only way you have to do it is to make it, make it yourself by being a cooperator. Really, and that myth about them taking care of your family when you go away is there's sure. been many a guy have debunked that myth and with their direct experiences. Michael D. Leonardo is a one example, and there's several others. You know, they just don't do it. At least they didn't in his case, and several others. So that's true. One last thing, Tony. Really appreciate you coming on here. And this oh, guy is yeah, interesting I, I thing. Like. Tell me just a little bit about your research process. Now, you know, I know you can do a Freedom of Information Act request and there's a lot of them already out there online but they're so heavily redacted you have to go beyond the freedom of information act request from the fbi what other yeah. sources do you use yeah i mean interestingly when i first started this years ago back in the 70s you know we didn't have databases you didn't have a lot of trial history on some of these cases so you had that new reservoir of transcripts proceedings results of litigation what we had to do, we basically had to go through the old newspaper archives, a very laborious process, the old reader's guide to periodical literature. You know, if you didn't know things, you had to start from scratch. Today, not only because I have the institutional memory of some of these criminal cases and some of the history, what you also have is a more extensive database collection where you can go back into the trial. You can go back into periodical articles and government records. Much easier now to do this. You can do it sitting at your desk with your moving your fingers yeah. across the keyboard. But also you have, and this is a very good resource for anybody doing this kind of research, consider the National Archives because they're often the repository of many of the old trial transcripts and court records of these cases. I, I use extensively this, in, particularly in the big heist, Frank Costello and Vito Genovese. Got the help of people at the National Archives in New York and in Washington, Silver Springs, Maryland. They were able to provide me with some treasure trove of materials. And also, you know, you got to not forget your state law enforcement and go back into those archives. So you have all of this vast amount of material that you can cull through. And also with digital resources, you have the digitization of newspapers, old newspapers. And you can go back on some things like newspapers.com or ancestry.com or whatever. And you can go back uh, as far as you want. And you can not only get the big papers for your area, but also some local databases have the local newspapers, which provide other information. I'm doing a project on uh, prohibition for uh, my newspaper Newsday. I found a lot of interesting stuff on some of the local newspapers, which are now in digital format. You can just call those up and they give you other leads. And, it, and it's great. 
There it is, folks. The Deadly Don, Vito Genovese, Mafia Boss by Anthony M. DeStefano. So, Tony, I really appreciate you coming on and you've been really enlightening as far as I'm concerned on that research. Finding those old court records through the National Archives, I've stumbled onto those here in the last couple of years and it is a huge treasure trove. They've got to be so old. <laughs> They've got to be like about 25 years old. And oh, they have yeah. to be, yeah. if they were of any noteworthy, they do a good job. If they think they could ever be of any interest to anybody, they'll save that file. They'll digitalize it and save it. And you can get it on CDs even. It's quite a resource. Yeah, I went back to the 1920s on something very recent. So that proves your point. Really? And newspapers.com, I got onto that. Those old writers, especially back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, they were much more colorful than they are today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> People ask me, I mean, do you, do you give much credence to what was written in the papers back then? Well, if they cover court proceedings, generally, I think there's a, another yeah. trustworthiness to that. What was said in court, what happened. You know, when you get into the analytical stuff and the, the feature stories, then you <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. But the, the writing was very colorful. It sort of rounds out the picture. Yeah, it does. It does. All right. Anthony DeStefano, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot, Tony. Thanks, Gary. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Well, folks, that ends another Gangland Wire episode. I just want to thank you all for listening and for all your nice Apple podcasts and other podcast app reviews and the nice comments you make on my YouTube page and on my Facebook and questions you ask on my Facebook pages. Now, as most of y'all know, I upload my Zoom interviews on YouTube so you can see what my guests look like in real life. And I also put most of those on my Gangland Wire podcast Facebook group. And, and in regards to those Facebook groups, I've got two. One is the Facebook page, Gangland Wire Facebook page, and the other was my podcast group. And the group is smaller, and I monitor that pretty closely. So get on that. I want to thank Ken Couture and several others for keeping fresh content on my Facebook page. If you want more mob information you can shake a stick at, just go to the Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook group. And remember, if you support the podcast with donations, you'll get an invite to my monthly live Zoom calls where we'll share stories, answer questions, and sometimes have guest speakers. And in general, we have a good time. A lot of guys will be sitting back in their den with a cigar and and a drink and And uh, we just have a really good time on those monthly Zoom calls. The main method of making a donation is on my website donate page. You can use a credit card or use PayPal. But you can also buy me a cup of coffee or shot in the beer with your Venmo app or make any donation that you want to make. If you do it on Venmo, make sure you get me an email if you want to be on my Zoom call. I ask for donations to help do my next documentary and a lot of you guys really responded big time and i've been able to pay people and it's going to have a little higher production values than what i've had before i'm getting really close to completing it it's about kansas city organized crime and politics i have a title finally it's boat fraud here again politics and the mob and don't forget about my previous documentaries gangland wire skimming from las vegas and brothers against brothers the savella spiro war both of those can be purchased or rented on amazon Now, finally, the last thing I'm selling, and then I'll leave y'all alone, is my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. Now, if you're going to get that book, you're going to find that I used a lot of the actual wiretap transcripts from the skimming investigation. And if you get the Kindle version, I got the audios from those wiretaps. And you just click on a link and you'll go to that other website and it will allow you to listen to all those wiretaps. 
I think that's kind of unusual. So go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. And if you don't have a Kindle, Amazon has free Kindle software for your tablet or your phone. Now I'm going to let you guys go. But first, I want to say that Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration, and their programs that help veterans out with PTSD. You can get help with their hotline, 800-873-8255, and then push one. Or you can go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. Thanks a lot for listening, and I must credit all of our music to our good friend and Frank Costello expert, Casey McBride from Portland, Oregon. Check out Casey's Frank Costello Facebook page, Uncle Frank's Place. Thanks, Casey. Thanks, Casey.